Hello listeners, and welcome back to Trash and Treasures, where we watch the movies other people throw away. My name is Vry, my pronouns are they, them, and with me as always is Dorothy, who uses she and her. Hello! And this is the final month of our Pride Month celebration. The or final month! <laughs> you know what? That's where we're at. <laughs> Pride in July. <laughs> it's fine. Where we have moved into the new millennium. With 2007's Itty Bitty Titty Committee, directed by Jamie Babbitt, who is better known for a previous alum of Pride Month, but I'm a cheerleader. And there is, well, there's multiple reasons that she's better known for, but I'm a cheerleader. Uh, The one let's go with right now is you can't find this movie streaming anywhere. It was really hard for us to get a DVD. But it sure is distributed by Wolf Video. Correction. It was distributed by Wolf Video. It's not on their website now. It is out of the prints. When you boot up the DVD, which we got on eBay, because I happened to find it from a seller who had accumulated a lot of older indie movies, it comes with this preamble little trailer from the production staff that's about, that's basically, you wouldn't download a car. You know, please don't upload this movie so that creators can get paid, which I'm about, I'm super into as a general rule, except that now this DVD they've asked you to purchase is out of print and nobody uploaded it. It's not streaming anywhere for purchase or as part of a service and only some one or two extremely sketchy looking sites have it even uh, pirate uploaded. There's one or two 30 second scenes on youtube this movie is essentially dead in the online nomenclature yeah this movie's a ghost this is very similar actually to what we went through a few years ago when we were trying to prove that japanese ghost was a thing this one has a little bit more of a paper trail since it's not crossing cultures but But yeah but it's up there Mm -hmm. yeah because the original distributor was Wolf Media, who put out yet another Pride Month choice of ours, Friends and Family, which also is not streaming anywhere, but was a little easier to acquire on DVD at an affordable rate, thankfully. Didn't Wolf also put out codependent lesbian uh, space alien seek same? I'm pretty sure. I think that that is a different one, because that was a matter of UK versus US rights. I respect that an indie publisher can't afford to keep certain things constantly available in perpetuity, although I don't know why you couldn't do it print-on-demand, probably because it would be expensive to constantly upkeep all those licenses. But boy, this is frustrating. Oh, no, my God, you are correct. She is showing me her phone where it uh, lists codependent lesbian space alien seeks same as a wolf media title. I've watched a lot of things with that Wolf logo. So at this point, Wolf is is going to become our eternal nemesis, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) They're doing their best. Thank you, but damn you. (laughs) Of those movies, I guess I'm the least uh, sad about this one. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, on paper, a lot of the things about it sound really nice, but... I think in practice, this is dated in a lot of ways that aren't very good. Yeah, when we did But I'm a Cheerleader, we 
sort of talked about the ways that it was extremely 90s and it was still good and watchable in a lot of in I think the essential ways but was definitely showing its age most notably that it was directed by a lesbian but written by a gay man and you could tell with the care that was given to Dante Bosco's side character and his two gay dads versus the main lesbian couple. So we were all excited because here is a film written by Jamie Babbitt and a bunch of other specifically lesbian collaborators. That will be exciting to see. Readers, it has exactly the same problems as But I'm a Cheerleader, but I think maybe worse. It's very awkward. And it also has sort of one of the same vibes as Codependent Lesbian Space Alien Seek Same in that it feels like a script that has been sitting around essentially unchanged since 1992. There is a very uh, edifying little mini documentary on the DVD where Babbitt talks about having the idea shortly after she made But I'm a Cheerleader, which, if you'll remember, was the late 90s. So this is a movie idea from 1999 or 2000 that came out in 2007, which is long in movie time, but especially long in movie time about queer activism. Because, oh yeah, this is an activist picture. Yes, the reason we- It seemed the next logical step in terms of just how how queerness is operating in these films. Last time we discussed Araki's definition of queer cinema as- a movie that is explicitly engaging with the queer community and queer politics and how those things are affected by the ongoing social and political landscape. And this is a movie that Babbitt explicitly made with the goal of encouraging young women to become involved in their local feminist scene. So this is queer cinema by that new queer cinema definition except it is for the bush era essentially and boy does it feel pre-crash that's another thing that we'll probably come back to but it feels intensely gen x on an economic level content warnings up ahead of time we are going to be talking a lot about misgendering and transphobia and radical feminism as it leans kind of into turf dog whistling Uh, Also, homophobia in general. There's definitely classism stuff. Body image, but in a weird way. Uh Like it is trying to be empowering and ends up being kind of shamey. Yeah, it just gets kind of awkward and sticky in a few different ways. There's also something that relating to an actual person that we're going to have to discuss that's just kind of uncomfortable. And I don't know that there's necessarily a good trigger warning for it. So this is a movie that centers- This is a film. It is a film. It's a rom-com. That's Babbitt's happy place, is doing rom-coms. I think you might have been uh, in the kitchen while during this, uh, this bit, but Babbitt does talk a little bit about finding sort of the romance genre useful in terms of working with ideas because you can give people this known factor- and then work around with introducing them to 
whatever themes you want to talk about in the movie because yeah romance is a is a useful and recognizable structure for writing themes around especially rom-coms because then there's also that layer of sort of security to it whatever happens they'll get together in the end yeah it'll work out oh cheating cheating and the military industrial complex (laughs) (laughs) so the plot of this film is that anna is 18 years old she has just gotten out of her first major relationship and she's depressed about that she is out to her parents and And her sister and everybody and her parents are so annoying they're just annoyingly supportive keep asking why she isn't going to bring her girlfriend to her sister's wedding because that is on the horizon and would you believe it they expect her to wear the bridesmaid's dress and they put this so one of these themes in this is supposed to be that she feels like uncomfortable with how small her boobs are but all they've done is put this actress in a dress that's several sizes too big for her body and the character keeps avoiding going to dress fittings her bust is neither large nor small (laughs) well this is the first of many body issues Mm -hmm. with this movie (laughs) So it's par for the course. Yeah, Melanie Diaz is, that's true, for a Hollywood actor. She is average. So, like, good-looking and thin. But part of how she is oppressed by society because she doesn't care enough about feminism is that she works as a receptionist for a plastic surgeon. Played by Jimmy Simpson. Hi, Jimmy. I assume... Jamie Babbitt needed Anne Mann and just called him up after Deb, uh, from, from the Deb set. Uh-huh. He, he probably walked over there from working with Angela Robinson the day before. Known men who are not shit. This guy. <laughs> He'll get, him get in. three lines. It is, I suppose, an interesting fact to note here that, yes, in fact, Deb's was made under the same filmmaking initiative that spawned Itty Bitty Titty Committee. Oh, God, what's the name of it? Was it Girls on Film? I think it is. I think Girls was- on Film is the name of the collection that the short. But it, it was specifically this uh, lesbian film collective that was nurturing women in general, and I think specifically lesbian filmmakers, to kind of give them their breakout hits. And then they all worked on the L Word. The short film to L Word pipeline is tragic. Am I still bitter that What's Her Fuck went from the L Word to writing Adam? Yes, I am. <laughs> The most daring representation of gender and sexuality of our time. Don't even fucking joke. That makes me so fucking angry. By the way, the movie version, also distributed by Wolf Films. Of course. You know, I'm not mad about that. (laughs) (laughs) Well played. So one night, Anna gets off of work and she notices that her job is being spray painted by a random blonde lady who is sort of high energy and fey in a way she looks like allison mack she does which i have no idea of who nicole vicious is as a human being that's unfair to say to her (laughs) just because i hate her her character it is good right so this is sadie who basically incriminates Anna so that she won't call the cops and then invites her to come to this anarchist we are told radical lesbian gathering called clits in action 
It's literally just the fucking Jay and Silent Bob joke. Being somewhat adrift and not really having any- And girl pretty. And yeah, you're right. No, the answer is because girl pretty and Anna have bad taste in women. Clearly. She shows up to this underground hang sesh where she meets the other people who are part of this collective. And here's where things start to get uncomfortable. Yup. So we have Meat, who is great. Meat is this uh, fantastic butch artist who has just kind of settled up with the fact that what she wants to make is not what people want to buy. And she has accepted that she wants to chase her artistic bliss over trying to make commercial stuff. And uh, she lives with a roommate played by legendary model Jenny Shimizu. Who has like one scene and, and it's is great. wonderful. And there is also Shuli, who is insufferable. And Shuli is somebody we'll have to come back to to talk about more because there's more going on there. Yes, there are layers a lot of which we'll have to do with that documentary I mentioned before. Yeah. But for now, Shuli is our super, extremely- Super, super aggro, retro, second wavy character. Who so cannot turn off and is going to be a bitch to you no matter what you say. And then, of course, we have Aggie, who is the token trans guy. In Not the meat. Not meat. Aggie. Which- a choice, but okay. I mean, you pointed out while we were watching that Meat seems like a conscious name that a butch woman specifically would choose if she's an artist interfacing with how she is perceived in the media. Right. Especially since a lot of her art does seem to be strongly vaginal focused and, you know, dealing with concepts. When I say vaginal, I mean vaginal folks. This has a concept of what lesbians are and what women are. Yeah, so the movie does not... It's respectful of Aggie and his pronouns and nobody asks him why he can't just be a butch lesbian. Like, everybody accepts that he's a, he's a guy and he's a man. Do they, though? Well, the documentary keeps misgendering the character. The actor who plays the character keeps misgendering him. Which makes it kind of hard to tolerate. But also, I mean, even in the scenes where we see Anna, like, affirming Aggie, Anna keeps phrasing it as, you seem like a really great person. It feels like the, den the gender dodge. Like, where I'm not gonna say you're a guy. But I didn't say you're a girl, so it's okay. Right, that thing that happens to trans women all the time. Where nobody knows how to use neutral pronouns until suddenly a trans woman appears. Mm -hmm. And then it's they, them all over the place. Yeah, and Aggie is treated as a guy, but allowed to be one of the girls in our girly girl group of girl fun. There's a line about how he gets a pa he's a man who gets a pass to be in this group because he was born with a clit, which makes me very nervous about how this group of characters would treat a trans woman. Not addressed. It never comes up. It's 20 minutes into the movie, and I remained on tenterhooks for the rest of the runtime. Mm-hmm. Look, I'm not saying that Shuli was in the back room during that struggle session. Clits in action is completely fucking useless. Uh, they go around and do stump protests, and that is all they do. And nobody notices them. They spray paint shit on a couple of windows. At one point, they put fat mannequins in the window of a shop that they break into. I want to know how they did that so quickly. 
I also want to know where they found fat people because they don't exist in this universe. Yes, for all the talk about body positivity and how you should love your small titties, the issue of whether you should love your natural big titties never comes up because there are no fat people in this film. And so, you know, big titties are all just hideously unnatural. They're all fake and exist only for the the slavering masses of cis men. I mean, meat's heavy, but... I don't know, I'd still call her, like, muscular. Like, she has a muscular frame, rather than being fat. Yeah, she's strong. She looks like a woman who lifts a lot of pieces of concrete. When making art. They also, at one point, put up a statue with a sign on it that says, It's Angela Robinson. Which is how we know it's Angela Robinson. (laughs) They have these meetings in Sadie's basement, which is not actually Sadie's basement. It's her older live-in girlfriends who- Well, she's the live-in girlfriend. You're right. (laughs) I mean, let's be clear. Courtney has the mortgage. That's true. So Sadie has a sugar mama. (laughs) And it is Courtney, this older established feminist who runs a nonprofit. And she's worthless. I don't even know that- sellout. I- See, the characters all think that, but I don't know that the film does. I think that's what makes the film interesting is still to me. No, that is one of the things that is weird to me about this film, because it feels like a film that was written at two very different points. Hmm. We're so deeply locked into the younger characters' perspectives that there's this implicit knowledge that a lot of what they're doing and expecting is unreasonable. But it's never really cracked into i wonder if that's because the, the there's two writers on the script uh tina mabry and abigail Schaefrin, what uh one of whom i think is slightly younger in her 20s and yeah. one of whom is closer to babbitt's age because babbitt was in her early 50s when she directed the film so or 40s yeah i was gonna say babbitt's 50 now right so i was doing some math there and this film like addresses a lot of things that we're still talking about today and I find myself becoming frustrated a lot of the time with these characters because it is sort of circling that drain still. But it's also, I think, a valuable film in that way because it so accurately captures what it's like when you're 18 and just discovering activism and that the world is shitty and unfair. And, and all how the- exciting it is to be on the side of right. <laughs> and how fucking annoying you are while figuring <laughs> that out. <laughs> because... I remember being 18. I was fucking annoying. I didn't have shit figured out. And I did a lot of stuff that was not unlike these characters. Except that, you know, I wasn't involved in an activist circle. Because where would I find them? But the characters realize that not enough people are noticing what they do. They decide to take a road trip. Yes, they decide to go up to a larger city so that they can take part in a protest in favor of marriage equality or gay marriage as it would have been termed at the time now that's not what they're actually doing but but that's what's happening at the protest they're going to on the way to that protest on the way to that protest sadie and anna have sex and this is after meat has already spoken to her like she just picks up girls man yeah you're you're not not special. special Anna does not take those words to heart because girl pretty and they bang. And no, this is not okay. It is cheating. It is not an open relationship. It is extremely not. 
Meanwhile, Shuli also picks dis- up a girl. Despite, and everybody acts very shocked that she's bi. Oh because they've seen her bang dudes before. What do? And they all gawk at her weirdly. Which is only one reason that that scene is weird. It's also very weird because, again, she's the very militant activist character. Like, of all of them. She's the one with the most hardline theoretical thinking here. Because she had dropped out of law school, so she is looking at things from that very analytical point of view. Dropped out of law school does not explain being just a fucking walking dictionary. It doesn't, (laughs) but it doesn't explain being 18 and also talking like that. You took a year of law school. But she picks up this cute soldier girl and they have like a little bit of talk about how the invasion of Iraq is wrong, but then... This extremely pretty lady, Calvin, is like, oh, no, it's not ideological for me. I just like to blow things up. And apparently that's all and, the conversation it takes. And also, I didn't willingly stop being in the military. I got thrown out because lesbian. A- and then she spanks Calvin. And that is never spoken of again, nor is this meant to be a hypocrisy that we examine later. It's really weird because everybody here is deeply lustful over the soldier. And over the sexiness of the soldier. The only troublesome aspect that we see there is just that, gosh, isn't it unfair that you're not allowed to go and blow people up? It's another one of those reminders that you said that uh, Melanie Diaz was not the original, that they tweaked the role for her, right? Yeah. Anna's role was, I believe, originally written for for her to be like a Jewish girl. And then Diaz nailed the audition. Movie's very white, which is interesting because Tina Mabry is a black woman, but the film still reads quite white feminism in how it functions. And I don't want to put that on her. She is a co-writer. She was clearly young when she did this. There's a lot of things. It's not her fault. It's just interesting to note. But yeah, it is extremely white and... You know, that's one of the reasons that, like, the Angela Davis thing comes off so oddly. And then, of course, speaking of the bisexuality, and yet another reason where I am both happy and sad that we watched that documentary. Everybody treats her like the fucking Ikea couch. She Now, now, <laughs> what they say about her, the actors, is that she doesn't, doesn't like, like labels. Yes, we were sitting there watching the documentary, and I was like, say it. And then and they, they did. said it. It was you some know, glee-ass shit. She's just not the kind of person who likes labels. She won't let herself be defined. And I'm just slapping the table with laughter. It is some wild shit in a film that is about very proudly claiming labels. Except when you're bisexual. So they um, get to the protest and pull some shit. Yeah. Shuli starts yelling that the gays shouldn't, in fact, marry because that's the wrong goal. Because marriage has always been about the subjugation of women to men. And that nobody should be placed into that hierarchical relationship. So obviously, all of the fundamentalists there are like, yeah, see, even even the gays agree that this is wrong. They can somehow tell that she fucks women, mm-hmm. even though her friends couldn't. At which point, Shuli gets into an altercation and... A fist fight on live TV! Yep, which is now the only thing that the protest is about. And it's the only thing their movement is known for. 
that scene is so painful, but I think in a good way. That scene really captures so much nuance of how much pressure you're under as an activist to be good when you're in front of the cameras and how hard that is when you're young and impassioned. And also the fact that that conversation was and does continue to go on in the queer community of, you know, where some people more ideologically are like, we don't want to get married. Marriage is stupid. And then you have the more pragmatic people who are like, okay, but we're not going to dissolve marriage tomorrow. And I would like to be able to visit my partner in the hospital while he's dying. Yeah. Like the formalized arrangement of marriage is yes, bullshit in that it privileges certain specific relationships over one another and historically has been used in an abusive fashion. But at the same time, Sometimes those rights and privileges are ones you need to have in order for more drastic end-of-life situations with people you care about. It's really interesting, and I think it, you know, as an older viewer, obviously I end up mostly frustrated with the younger characters, but I can also remember being that younger person, and I think it captures a very naturalistic truthfulness in scenes like that. Courtney calls them up to be like, what are you doing? You can't abolish marriage. We don't even have equal rights yet. I run a nonprofit and my girlfriend is punching people on TV. What? It's so good in those moments. And I wish that the film held up to those moments of naturalism so that I could recommend this as like a time capsule. Because I think Babbitt's intentions at the time this film was made are not unwarranted. You know, I did grow up in Wyoming, so my experience is always going to be skewed. I was uh, not terribly informed as a teenager, and I was still by far the most left-leaning person in my circle of friends, possibly in my school. But I think it would not be unreasonable to say that when we were this age, there was much less of an awareness and push towards activism than there is for teenagers and young college students today yeah and that's one of the reasons why i say this almost feels more like a movie from 1992 it feels like a riot girl film like it feels very punk the zine aesthetics the fact that they're making and distributing their stuff as photocopy zines it feels like artifacts from from the creator's college days that don't necessarily map directly onto the bush era circumstances but they come back home shockingly and is not actually special and sadie does not <laughs> actually want to break up with courtney oh no baby the, the relationship is basically over but it's not it's not though and here we hit a snag anna res- responds by becoming more generally annoying by blowing off everything she had committed to for her sister's wedding because marriage is bullshit putting up just blatant lies in the restrooms where she works, like claiming that tampons deliberately cause you to have heavier periods so that you need to buy more. That's some conspiracy theory 5G shit. And um, actively trying to chase away people coming to the office for surgery because you're all victims of the titty police. Just try loving your itty bitty titties. The fact that that character is played by Melanie Linsky is extremely funny, though. Explain the joke for the listeners. Um, So the client she attempts to scare away from the clinic is played by Melanie Linsky, who was in Heavenly Creatures. 
the Peter Jackson movie about the murder lesbians from New Zealand, one of whom grew up to be Anne Perry, the true crime writer. The world, fucking small and uh, wild. And that same true crime case was also fictionalized and written about in the early lesbian pulp, The Evil Friendship. So much history here. Incredible. A good poll, frankly. This all turns into a big blowout where the CIA is essentially dissolved. Sadie... The clits in action, not... Yeah. No, you're right. That would be entirely too effective <laughs> for, for clits in action. And this is where we were very confused for a minute because... Our DVD has a big scratch on it because it's used. Dear listeners, we missed a very important plot development <laughs> the first time around. So big and so confusing that we had to go back through synopses of the film and try to rewind it backwards in order to get into the scene that the scratch skipped us over. So after this big blowout, when the group dissolves, Anna goes out drinking with Aggie. And she gives him a makeover, looks very handsome, and they sleep together. And then she's like, nah. Well, specifically, they sleep together, he makes her a lovely breakfast in bed, and then she, being a fucking dumbass, happens to catch sight of Sadie and tries to explain that, no, no. He means nothing to me. And Aggie hears and is sad. He's sad and clearly a nice boy. Mm-hmm. Just thought they hooked up because cause she cared about him. And that is when our protagonist hits her lowest point of sadness. She has... Oh, she's also oppressed with a bra, which just doesn't have the snap of a corset, really. Look, if you don't want to wear a bra, don't wear a bra. But sometimes you need a bra or your back will hurt. For some people, these are good and helpful things. Well, also, it's real ridiculous because her family's like, you missed literally all of the dress fittings that would have caused this dress to fit you properly so now you are going to have to wear a bra underneath it to the wedding so it doesn't fall off they have not just oppressed her by put taking this off the rack she didn't go to the fittings actions consequences also she spray painted the white walls of her parents house where she lives it's a gen x movie uh-huh there is one character who pays rent yes in that one glorious roommate scene that you mentioned earlier yeah Meet's roommate Laurel mentions that Meet rents out a room to me because I have an actual job and income so that y'all can go around not working and doing your little protests. You're right, it is extremely 90s because from a modern perspective, I look at things that I think even younger people know today that shock protests have their place they can be good and important to get eyes on an issue that is important but it's equally important to be backing them up with like community projects and outreach and education and sustained effort outreach and education other than finding a hot girl and banging her one time so that she'll follow you around and join your movement it's gonna take too long that's literally sadie's mo you will never get through all of los angeles that way even if you try but this is only shock activism. And despite the fact that it has that back and forth with Courtney and her nonprofit, who seems to be interested in these more sustainable long-term options, but it's also boring because there are charts and investor meetings, it never quite reaches that aha moment. Yeah, we never actually see what what anything does, ever. 
But it also lacks a certain amount of tension because it almost feels like the story in the third act is crying out for Courtney to be kind of this respectability figure, which she's really not. The third act is Anna decides to fix her fuck-ups by getting the band back together, apologizing to Aggie, and staging a big splashy protest on this local Oprah-esque talk show where Courtney is about to speak because there's this celebration of the extremely dick-shaped Washington Monument. Yes, yes, it looks like a dick. We all know. And dick's bad. It's literally just the the naming of the academic term structure clearly shows a preference for semen over ovaries. That's why I'm petitioning. (laughs) For it to be called the spring ovester. These characters are literally just the comedy straw lesbian from Legally Blonde. It is weird to see such second wave characters in a movie made when the third wave is starting even to get into popular culture. Like, this is post-Legally Blonde, an extremely capitalist take on third wave feminism, but it's trying. Like, this film is just as white, so we can't (laughs) critique it on that front. (laughs) And they're going to sneak onto this film and stage their protest because they know that well, Courtney's going to be on there, we'll make our big sewing. And it feels like structurally and dramatically. And somehow also, some of them fly out to Washington, D.C.? I guess. Despite the fact that what they need to do is all tech-based. It's hacking. It's lead hacking. No, no, I think that we are supposed to believe that the thing they do actually physically exists. No, that, that explosion looked way too fake. It has to be a paint job. I... But it's so unclear because the effects in this section are real bad. But Calvin helps with this because she gets to blow things up. Of course. That is her Chekhov skill. But it does feel, doesn't it, like they should be overriding Courtney as like an assimilationist apologist figure. When she's on this, she's on this talk show to protest the monument also. Yeah. And she's talking about how it's a distraction from these deeper systemic issues going on in the U.S. Yeah, and the fact that why why should we celebrate Washington anyway? So, like, she is having this real dialogue about actual issues. She is not these char- this character who very much exists of, like, no, I'm a gay and I love patriotism and freedom patriotically, too. Yeah, she's not a log cabin Republican. Which, for the rest of the movie, it works really well in that shade of nuance, but for this conflict specifically to work at the end of the movie, it feels like she should be something else. Right, it feels like they're flipping her off personally. It's very Sadie does not come along for this last ride, of course. No, because she has been confronted about her infidelity by her partner, and now she's having a sad. She, she is sulking. I really hate Sadie. Intellectually, I want to grasp with the fact that she's 19 and making a dumb mistake because she's she with a partner. She might be as much as 21. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. She's with a partner who's too old and mature for her and in a different stage of her, different stage of her life. Which is gross because we don't know how they met and it might have been at college. Yeah. On I, opposite ends of the classroom. We know that Courtney was a professor. We don't know if she was her professor. Either way, inappropriate. Extremely inappropriate, yeah. So that's, you know, not great. But they take over the airwaves of this talk show and turn the Washington Monument into a giant dick, which they then blow off the top of it. And I have to assume they didn't literally blow up the Washington Monument because they'd be in prison. Uh, well, Julie and Calvin go to prison. Right, where they start a cell of the CIA from within prison. 
Yeah. But she's not being executed as a terrorist. So it's really funny because they phrase it as they like start a cell of the CIA from prison focused on liberation. When they've been using this very second wavy terminology of women's liberation through the whole movie. So I assume what you're talking about is like prison abolition, but you're not using those words. I'm not confident the movie knows it's talking about prison abolition unless Shuli learned some things in jail. But they pull off this stunt, it gets everybody talking, and Katie and Anna make up, and meet, but I don't meet care. Meat sculpted the big dick, so Meat's career takes off and she finds a girlfriend. Which, good for them, that I care about. Sadie and Anna ride off into the distance and we get a little text crawl that says that Aggie is auntie and has a girlfriend. He has started a spinoff sect of the CIA called Boys Help Girls. Which is cute. Yep. And that's the movie. I really hate the central romance a lot. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. There's also some other things that are weird in this movie. Like, first of all, the demonization of plastic surgery is present. And it's, you know, trying to say that plastic surgery is this damaging phenomenon that creates these unreasonable expectations for women's bodies. But I can't stop thinking about how this situation keeps circling around when Aggie's right there. And what if he wants surgery? In a film that is so capable of nuance in certain places, it becomes extremely awkward when, you know, we can talk about how the beauty industry is extremely harmful because it is. That is a thing that is true. But also all of the ways that there is nuance to that situation where, you know, you have transitional surgery or you have surgery for people with chronic pain or just because people want to do body modifications on themselves. Like, there is no acknowledgement of any underground variants. Any reason except that you want men to slaver your titties Mm -hmm. because that is how you get your validation in this twisted society. Or how breast reductions. I know multiple people who have had breast reductions because boobs, pain. But again, there's no one with big titties in this movie because they are all extremely thin, able-bodied actors. Which, you know, is a look. I know everybody wanted to fuck Shane at the time. Why, I don't know. But I respect that it was a moment and you were all going through it. I also have bad mistakes like that. It's just such a disappointment because there are parts of this movie I really like, you know? Yeah, and it's very weird to me that the movie tried to edit itself to make it even more confusing. But another reason that we keep circling around this issue of it feeling very second wavy and that sort of disjointed situation between sort of life stages that we see here because first of all we know jamie babbitt doesn't think marriage is bad we know she thinks that that's an unnuanced ridiculous argument that you've gotten yourself into a silly situation you can't get yourself out of we know this because she's married (laughs) but yeah part of the reason that the ideology in this film feels so weird is because there's literally a ghost in this fucking movie the character of Shuli is based off of, like, directly based off of, like, in appearance, the giant glasses, the long straight hair, and ideologically based off of an actual person named Shulamith Firestone, who was in many ways a precursor to a lot of the cyborg feminism concepts put forward by Donna Haraway and so she was second wave, but also very much a precursor of the third wave. And she's, she looked at feminism 
through a Marxist lens in which to be female is to be a member of a subjugated class in a class structure. Like she saw misogyny as part of the class divisions that Marxism has ignored, you know, like race, but that is based around a very, very embodied, very cisgender understanding of reproductive labor being associated with having ovaries. And so she did a lot of work around the idea that reproductive labor needed to be separated entirely from genital interaction so that everybody could essentially take on a neutral identity in society to break down the gender roles. It's interesting stuff. So they essentially sort of just photocopied this woman and popped her into the movie. And truly says that's who she's named herself after. Yeah, which is interesting. But it also feels odd because Shulamith Firestone's, the peak of her work was in the late 70s. She essentially stopped being able to write after about 1983. And by 2006, she was essentially living in poverty and almost total isolation with no friends because there weren't enough support structures in place to handle her schizophrenia. She died about five years after this film came out, presumably of starvation because she was unable to care for herself. I say presumably because due to her family's religious beliefs, it wasn't possible to do an autopsy. So it feels very awkward and in even poorer taste in retrospect to have this parody of Shulam of Firestone walking around being the strident weird retro feminist contributing some of the most comprehensive knowledge-based information but also not being allowed to grasp nuance because this is an avatar i suppose the movie does try to give her dignity on her terms because as the one who goes to prison for everybody, you know, because Shuli gets arrested, nobody else goes to prison. She becomes the iconoclast so everybody else can continue working out in society. Yeah. And, like, there's something to that. There is something to those epilogues of how there are different roles for different people in the community and everybody needs to go and find that part that works for them. Not everybody needs to be doing the same thing Feminism, in fact, does not look like being annoying and 18 and giving everyone your hand-copied zine. I tell you what, though, Calvin's going to have a real hard time finding employment later on with both a dishonorable discharge and a felony conviction on her record. Yep. There are things like that I like thinking about them, you know, Mm -hmm. after the fact. And I do think that this film, with another pass to really develop the amount of nuance would have been a stronger film but i also feel like the elements of it that are rough or light or amateurish are kind of what make it work i think it would get too theory heavy if you bore down on it too much more there's not a lot of reviews for this movie because i think it had a fairly small theatrical run i think it was mostly a festival release yeah Uh, most of them are like it's a little bit Either they liked the character stuff or they didn't, but most of them were like, this is kind of didactic. (laughs) And it 
makes me a little sad on Babbitt's behalf that she made this film specifically to reach a young audience and it's just trapped in non-existence whereas people can but I'm a cheerleader is out there and pretty accessible which makes yeah. me happy I'm glad it's people a really can cute movie in general in general and it's interesting as we come to the end of pride month this year to think about you know the needs of theory versus accessibility which is kind of always been and, with this and praxis mm-hmm <laughs> Which is where we started with Whale and with Whale putting these coded intentions into this mass market film through, you know, Waters making extremely outside film for nobody that became a a midnight film and a Rocky kind of in this vaunted artistic space that queer people had been able to carve out for themselves at that point. And then Babbitt, who is in, we've gotten to the point of micro studio space and gotten some distribution but also because because it lacks that sort of past the tapes element to it it's essentially lost media in some ways yeah or hurtling towards that at a rapid pace and when you combine that with you know the way it is sort of trying to take on this dual purpose of being like actively verbally vocally activist and the problem with well also being a narrative how do you balance those two things while also making a film that doesn't age like milk within a decade this film's only 14 years old and it feels ancient because thank god queer theory has evolved at such a rapid pace over the past decades you know we've come a long way baby as they say yeah but it does feel like it should be you know, more of a time capsule piece from the early 90s. It feels like a very 90s punk vibe that's been weirdly transported. I want to say Babbitt does explicitly name drop Riot Girl in talking about the inspirations. So. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and there are shots of, you know, Sleater Kenny CDs and stuff. So it's a film conceptualized in the early 2000s using ideas from the early 90s that came out in the late 2000s. It's a very odd mix of eras, but I think unlike, uh, unlike codependent space, uh, codependent space space lesbians, lesbians. close enough, (laughs) close enough, that movie comes from a a radical ideological space in terms of its creators, but I think it holds up better other than the payphone cell phone stuff. Whereas this relies so heavily on how activism worked and how activism was conceptualized to work at the various times that it feels so much more out of place. And I'm, I am not of the opinion that one should just make art. And if you're doing it well, your themes and ideas will shine through. People are stupid. We're not even just stupid. People don't know and they need somebody to be a little obvious if they're not media literate. And it's good for art like that to exist, but you run that risk of, okay, if you're going to do that, you got to be able to get it out there to the people who need to see it and accept that once it's purposed is done, you have made a more disposable piece of art. Mm-hmm. Ah, Wolf Video. Wolf Video is, is not unlike Shout Factory. Except the packaging isn't as nice. Yeah, but I mean, even Shout Factory is no Arrow. Arrow is the gold standard of non-criterion. Thank you for our lives, Arrow Video. Any last thoughts on Pride before we wrap it up for the year? Ah. Boy, really, uh... Yeah, let me just put this on you. (laughs) Let me just put a bow on this, please. (laughs) On this whole concept. (laughs) 
No, but I mean, I think we, I think we put together an interesting collection this year. I, I, like, I think that the thematic linking and, and the way that all of these films were sort of differently grappling with boundaries was fun. Yeah, I love watching sort of the market influences of how art and activism and activist art gets made over the decades. I love weird queer shit. It's always so hard to pick just four. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because there are so many options. And how do they all play together? And I love doing these, though. And I'm really glad that folks at home seem to enjoy them, too. Makes me happy. Recommendations this go-round. Speaking of political film, if you have Canopy, I know that it's there. I think it might be on a couple other services, too. Rafiki is a wonderful 2018 film from Kenya that is very much political art because homosexuality is still criminalized in Kenya and the filmmakers still took this risk of making a love story about these two teenage girls. And because of those restrictions, it has to end in a way similar to Carol, where we're implying that the happy ending is there, but we don't actually show it. Heads up, uh, because it is telling this kind of uh, classic story for that audience where it's still dealing with the criminalization element, it does include a pretty upsetting scene of gay bashing. So just be aware of that uh, if you're going into it. But it is a great film and the young actors are so good. Yeah, it's also an Afro bubblegum work, which is a specific ethos of, of Afrocentric content creation that focuses on Africa as a place of positivity and of own-centered existence and not a place that needs to be interceded in or fixed by. Good movie. Wanted to wanted to give folks one more to, to go out on and check out. Also, we recently watched a documentary from 2017 called Of Lo- Love and Law, which is about a gay lawyer couple living in Japan. It's from 2017, so it's a little bit older now, but a lot of the issues that they focus on in their work, you know, sort of dealing with uh, issues of child neglect, uh, inability to unregistered people uh, because of the way that family registers work, the issue of marriage equality in Japan. In fact, one of the issues that that gets pointed out in one of our main character, I guess, classes is has become one of the central arguments of, of a case against Japan's legislator now for why, uh, why same-gender marriage should be legalized. So it's a very interesting, prescient documentary and very sweet. I do feel like I was lied to because I didn't see them interrogate the parrot. As gay lawyers are wont to do, yes. Yes, As was my understanding. (laughs) Uh, And that film is on Canopy as well, and you can also rent it or buy it, I think, on Vimeo, which I think is region-free. And that is Pride Month 2021. Thank you for sticking with us as our schedule continues to be weird. Oh my god, I'm so tired. Constantly tired. Uh, If you liked this, you can find more of our stuff by searching for Trash and Treasures on SoundCloud or your podcaster of choice. If you could leave us a five-star rating or review, I'd appreciate it. It helps folks find us and washes out the bad taste of the weird chuds who keep giving us low rankings because of our it's JW leanings. Uh, you can also email us. We are at trash treasures pod at gmail.com. We love getting mail. It makes us feel warm and fuzzy inside. And it's a little easier to talk long form than in a tweet. 
You can find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Trash and Treasures, where I am working on bonus episodes for your ears. And you can also get Dorothy's Drink Guide from our Drunk Book Club episodes, which will be returning after this one. One of the upcoming bonus episodes I think that I might put together is maybe a run-through of a presentation I did at a panel at a conference this summer, so... It's super cool and interesting. If you liked this Pride Month stuff, you will like that. You can also find us on social media. We are on Tumblr at Trash and Treasures Pod because we'll leave that sinking rat ship of a site when it dies. And we are on Twitter at Trash Pod. I want to give a shout out to at Bree13V because, I don't know, I'm glad that, that we are picking all of the things that you enjoy with Pride episodes. We like them too. Yay. All right, join us next time where after I have taken a a nap. A book. Yes, we will be reading a book, which is another commission episode. Yeah, Excited to get to it. Uh, That episode will also be chock full of content warnings, but don't worry, we'll get those to you. But like different ones. Different ones. All right, uh, until next time, take care of yourselves. Bye, y'all. 